Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers and for anyone who wants to know about stories and who would like to write more, better and happier. I hope you're well. I'm very emotionally well and also I have a head cold. Man flu, as uh, as they call it. I don't, don't know where that started as a kind of attack on... Uh, men's uh, ability to survive colds. I think it's kind of the implication with man flu is that we tend to to complain and whinge more. Um, I'm, I'm fine. Obviously, you can hear from my voice I'm not doing that bad, but I did bring it up. I did want, you know, even though the nature of podcasting as a medium means that you are not able to give me sympathy in real time, that's not it you know this is an asymmetric exchange you could send me emails or contact me via social media later on but it you know this is asynchronous right so you can't give me sympathy when theoretically i would need it but i like to think by mentioning that i'm feeling a bit poorly now it's a bit like backing a kickstarter right one that you don't necessarily know if it's going to pay off, but it looks interesting. And the date that it's going to get fulfilled is far enough away that it's like sending future you a little present and you'll forget about it. And then just out of the blue, hey, someone's messaged me and said, I hope you're feeling a bit better after your cold, Tim, and I'll feel validated. And um, that'll be good. Anyway, look, this the show is generally not about me... Um, alluding to sort of mild feelings of illness but about um helping writers i hope you're super well i feel like we might as well just jump into today's uh you know except i'll just say you know the show doesn't have any sponsors at the moment so if you enjoy it please share it so other writers can especially you know with other writers you think might help it if you're a member of any forums please you know send a spread links say hey people you want to read this whenever somebody you know gives their endorsement it's always it really helps uh, spread the word of the show um all of the big jumps in her listenership have been because of somebody going hey i think you're gonna like this and other people coming to the show if you're new i hope you enjoyed today's show if you're old welcome back thanks for sticking around with us and if you want to support the show the two key things you can do are pre-order and buy my books. Uh, I've got a book out called The Honours and my new one called The Ice House is available for pre-order. There's links in the show notes. And if you just want to chuck some money to help keep the lights on, help with my website hosting costs and with the hosting costs on SoundCloud, um, there's a coffee link as well. Uh, the Just ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare. And I'll put a link in the show notes as well where you can go and chuck me a few beans um to help me keep the lights on i want to say thank you very much to everyone who's done that i've been able to my website hosting has just come up again and i've been able to fix uh to pay for next years because of donations of generous listeners so thank you thank you very much it's you know it takes me a lot of time to do this show i really love doing it and the only reason i can afford to do it is because people um listeners just really generously dig into their own pockets so it doesn't cost me money to do this show. Uh, so thank you very much. So today I'm going to do another first page critique because I know that lots of you got in touch and say, looked in, we really, really like them. They're our favourite bits of the show, or at least we want more of them. And, uh, you know, so here I'm going to do one. 
And today's one, and, and by the way, at the end of the show, I'll just mention how you can submit if you'd like to submit your work yourself for the show, and also how you can submit it for our upcoming live shows next month, which I'm hoping to see you at. Okay, so today's uh, extract is Untitled, and it's by Dan. Thank you very much, Dan, for submitting. My dreams were of strange moons and diving for treasure, but my nightmares were always of her. Sometimes she was tapping the glass with her long brass nails. Once, when I was watching Grandmother's Cod, she crashed from the water, clutching my tender throat. But on this cold Tuesday, the pond was frozen solid in my nightmare, and Mother was trapped. Worst still, she was alive, struggling to squirm, lips blue and black like lugworms. I was stabbing at the ice with one of Grandmother's best dinner forks, wanting to free her somehow, but also afraid of cutting her out, when I woke feeling clammy and damp, which wasn't unusual in the pond house. But this morning there was a wailing, the sharp howl of death. When Uncle Philip died, Grandmother offered a solemn nod, with the death of Aunt Ladle a discreet sniff, a wail like this meant only one thing, the death of Cod. I could hear Aunt Gwendolyn down there too. Are you sure it's dead, Mother? It? Are you in it? Of course he's dead. He sank right to the bottom. Do you think he's asleep? You thought he was dead last week. He was only asleep then. He's dead. Dead as a bone. What a rotten world we're in. The silver might. The shard of heaven. Was it you, you nasty devil? As I crept downstairs in my pyjamas, Grandmother was poking into the dank pond with her stick, blaming Tyke the largest of the cod. And here are my suggested cuts. That was exciting, wasn't it? I didn't expect to do a voice. Didn't expect to add that was a bit more drama than I normally add in. Normally, just a flat reading to allow you to hear it. This time, a little bit of little bit of a, a little bit of an audition, a little bit of a showreel for the uh, Radio 4 afternoon play. Yep, if BBC if you're listening, I can do I can do three voices. They are um, uh, high status elderly colonel. Oh hello, um, washerwoman. Oh, what's wrong with you, gov? And um, and me and Tim Clare. Those are my three voices. Uh, it's pretty good range. So you, there, you've got the upper classes the working classes, and me, the middle classes. All human life is there. So, uh, yeah, get in touch via my website. My dreams were of strange moons and diving for treasure, but my nightmares were always of her. Now, anyone who's listened to a few of these first-page critiques will know it's not that unusual for me to praise the first sentence of a submission, or at least sign off on it, you know, co-sign it, and say, look, I think this is... Good. I suspect the mythic pressure of the opening line focuses writers' minds somewhat. Writers know at some level a first line is a down payment, so it gets that extra little bit of attention and love, trying to make sure that it contains value. But for what it's worth, and as always, I'm just one person. I've edited over a hundred full manuscripts and I'm an author myself, but my views are as partial and subjective as the next sallow hair suit neurotic for what it's worth, I think this line is particularly good. There's a whole bunch of tonal cues in the lexical set of that first clause. Strange moons. 
treasure that, whether you intend it or not, makes promises about what this story is going to be about. The, the feel of it. I like the parallel construction you've used. Hello, by the way, Dan. The parallel construction here. My dreams were, but my nightmares were. One, it's great to have an opening line that goes, positive assertion about the characters and or world, but complication. I'll give a few examples of this format because seriously, everyone listening, you can nick this as an opening bid for not just your novel, but for any scene within your novel, especially when you're introducing a new character. The streets and alleys belonged to the costermongers, bully boys, the big town swells dripping in gemmed plunder from the moon wars and the city watch with their troll dogs. But the rooftops belonged to us. I was bleeding, one leg hanging by a tatter of gristle and sinew, watching the avalanche crash down the mountainside towards our derailed carriage. But I was free. Arnhold was king, but he was not sane. Those are just three I made up. You know what? I actually think it would be a pretty terrific creative writing exercise to spend ten minutes making up some first lines that are like, a thing was so, but another thing was so, or possibly not so. It's it's a great ball pit for the creative circuits of your brain to play in, and as with all these things, what fires together wires together. The more you play, the more you experiment, the more you take that restriction and invent stories that fit it, the beefier the toddler of your imagination is going to get until it looks like the baby from Spirited Away. If you don't play with me, I'll break your arm. But I digress. Look, the the parallel construction in this opening sentence is nicely emphasised by picking two contrasting linked words. Dreams and nightmares. I, I, I wanted originally to say two opposite words, but some deeply helpful, smart conscientious soul will write in pointing out that a nightmare is not the opposite of a dream it's just an unpleasant dream in fact it's a subset of the category dream rather than the opposite dreams versus reality i suppose would be the opposite fine fine but you get i trust my general thrust so you could say my days were blah 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 but my nights were blah 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 or the people rejoiced when blah, 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 but they wept when blah, blah, blah. Or, in life, Elsinore Pilrig was a surgeon seamstress of little account, her timesheet at the cadaver works immaculate, the even timbre of her mediocrity, unperturbed by a single moment of independent thought. But in death, she was a god. I'm just hammering home the point that this is a, a solid and flexible format that you can plagiarise, plagiarising exact words. And, you know, I apologise, Dan, but I'm not suggesting that people nick your story. Plagiarising exact words is, is, is a crime and an awful thing to do. Plagiarising moves is a fundamental part of creative writing. Don't judge the quality of this first line as a move by the examples I just pulled out my jacksy. You know, try it for yourself. See how it feels for you. See how far you can take it, ways that you can break it. In fact, I suspect this week's exercise on my weekly writing workout may well be inspired by this little detour I've just gone down. If you're not signed up to that, by the way, I do a free weekly creative writing class every Friday 
by email. One little brand new 10 minute exercise every week to get your fiction muscles shredded and give you the easy win you so desperately crave. You can just search for Tim Clare's weekly writing workout if you want the sign up link or just click there's a sign up link in the show notes and on my website timclairpert.co.uk i'd love to see you there look dan what i'm saying is in a nutshell imagine it encased in a little nutshell crack it open Ooh, here's what i'm saying i like this line you've got tone you introduce a protagonist you mention her but we don't know who she is yet oh we're intrigued and there's a hint of conflict and threat it is a good hook perhaps If I were being very nitpicky and I'm having to go super pedantic, which is a sign that all the basics are in place. So please, please take me being a wanker now as the compliment it is. You know, maybe strange is a bit of a feeble fart of an adjective. It's abstract. It just tells us what the moon is, what the moons are supposed to evoke rather than using them as signposts to point towards the quality of strangeness. Like, what is the difference, actually, between a moon and a strange moon? What am I supposed to picture that's that's different between, if you say, there's a moon, here's a strange moon. What specifically do these moons that you're describing look like? Are they an unusual colour, size, texture? What's strange about them? Are they singing opera and wearing a large false moustache like now i get by the way that strange moons sounds nice you've got these two long syllables there strange moons and there's a cadence to the double stress where we rest on the thing you want the reader's eye to focus on so the sentence rhythm lingers on a key noun phrase that's good that is solid construction where the mouthfeel of the sentence if i can plunge into wine tasting wankery but the mouthfeel of the sentence is a thing cadence is a thing and if you think it's not at all i think most likely you're just not aware of its effects and you may be subtly aware of them but when you become consciously aware of them, you can start to adjust for it, right? So we, we hit strange moons and, and it, we just kind of linger on this thing and it's nice and it just slows us down when we hit it because both of those single syllables are long single syllables. But strange, it's it's just a bit of an easy fallback. I overuse it too. I overuse strange all the time when I'm just trying to be richly evocative. It's sort of like the stylistic equivalent of putting paprika in everything you cook because it, it kind of feels like it should go in this stew. It's it's the right colour. I mean, what isn't made better with a bit of paprika, right? Oh, the strange moon. Norman waited for me like a strange jailer. Gravy gathered in strange pools. Like, it has this vague literary perfume to it it sounds poetic right it's uh, you when we, you add strange to something and and it, and it gives it this kind of highfalutin kudos that it wouldn't otherwise have but basically let's be honest with ourselves here let's do the work folks it's basically meaningless padding i know i know saying this out loud hurts me too but this is how we're going to heal Treasure. Again, if I'm picking holes, you use the word treasure. Strange moons and diving for treasure. Again, is a bit of a broad noun. Treasure. Are we talking gold doubloons, gems, pearls, jeweled scepters, silver dinner services, ancient crowns? What? 
crunchy specificity, folks. Like, I, I don't just say this for my health. One very particular thing can spider out like a... Uh, like frost spreading across a windscreen and suggest this whole landscape. Like Nick Harkaway talked about this in my chat with him on the podcast about how actually the tighter you zero in on this one thing, the more work the reader's brain will do filling in the gaps. You just pick one very knifey tight thing, this absolute zero thing and like a brinicle spreading underwater and murdering starfish the one image that you've picked will give the reader a whole landscape without them even being conscious from it and you can just get on with telling your story but look neither of these suggestions neither of these changes are essential i admit i think it would be churlish to demand them of you i just think for me their stylistic preferences. Those are things that I would want to tighten. They are the gaskets that I would just be giving like a half crank with a spanner. But mainly, Dan, well done, right? I know I've kind of gone off on one there to create some teachable moments out of your first line, but the reason I've done that is because mainly it is a good first line. It is a solid first line. It is a compositionally sound first line. I don't I see a lot of okay first lines I see a lot of good ones but that was like an actually impressive first line so well done right next line shall we get on with this okay sometimes she was tapping the glass with her long brass nails once when I was watching grandmother's cod she crashed from the water clutching my tender throat I like both of these sentences again you've got parallel construction time-based adverbial clause example Time-based adverbial clause. Example. Sometimes she dot dot dot. Once when I was she dot dot dot. Now that 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 parallel construction helps the sentences flow. It helps us crucially to organise them by giving the narrative a certain unity of thought. Some people might be listening, thinking, "Jesus Christ, Tim, you are overcomplicating this. You're really, really trying to convince us." that you know what you're talking about or alternatively fucking hell am I expected to take all of this account into account every time I write a sentence am I supposed to know this am I a dum-dum for not immediately seeing this and and breaking down every sentence that I read in a story into like matrix like streams of data that I can then put back together it'd take me all morning just to write a paragraph if I had to think this way and, and to that into those fears, I say, one, welcome to my world. Yes, to a certain extent, your concerns are completely valid. Being good on the line is more work, ultimately, than being shit on the line. That's just the way it is, right? Like, that's why writers of commercial thrillers, and I am not throwing shade on them. I am throwing a tiny bit of shade on them, but they have more money than me and sell more books than me so they can cope with a bit of gentle ribbing writers of commercial fit thrillers can spaff out a book in a few months right that's why michael moorcock said he wrote some of the rune stuff books in three straight days if you're not worried about how your sentences sound if you're not worried about being muddled or dull or cliched if you're not worried about shifting the burden of the work onto the reader so they do all the imaginative work for you then by all means jettison all this crap i'm talking about some very successful authors do i you know i have read some works of commercial fiction that i think are 
bollocks on the line and a lot of readers genuinely don't mind that's not what they've turned up for that's not what they're signed up for and in, in a way it would be it would be nonsensical to criticize the books on those terms because that's simply not the game that they're in and i'm not like putting the books in a patronizing lens of going you can't object to this like some readers do care about what's on the line the the quality of the sentences just the basic comprehensibility of the sentences and 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 won't swallow any of that dog shit at all um and you know that's up to you as a writer you can make those choices i think there are some commercial writers who just go i know it's not deathless prose i don't claim that i don't have a tin ear for dialogue that's not what we're about we're trying to, i'm trying to tell a story and all of that can kind of go to hell that is a valid artistic choice right i'm not sneering at it but look those people have careers that's the like that's the bottom line they've got careers and they're not doing them by murdering people it's fine i'm they're not bad people for doing that. They just have different priorities. I, I just don't want to sound like I'm being a dick about it. Obviously, I'm passionate about writing. Obviously, I want sentences to be good. But it doesn't make me morally better. It's not a superiority thing. It's just a choice. But look, what I will say is this. You can internalise some of these processes in a way that you don't have to be consciously unpicking the pocket watch and then screwing it back together manually you can make it through a little bit of a t uh, initial practice so that some of these subroutines these principles become second nature and i would say also like not all writers of commercial fiction are shit on the line you know uh, 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 you know you read a lot of the stuff that stephen king has r r written about how to put a sentence together putting the most interesting word at the end of the sentence and although he sort of acknowledges their exceptions you know, he's interested in, like, how do you write a cool scene? How do you get a cool sentence? How do you describe something in an interesting way? So, it, and then there's some literary fiction writers who are bollocks on the line and just cover it up by rather pompous themes. So I don't want him to make it seem like I'm starting a kind of literary fiction, but having constantly slagged off Litfic on this show in a kind of in a slight mild act of self-loathing for me to now turn on genre fiction as well so now i'm just going to live in the in, in the bomb blasted demilitarized zone between the two the two great nations friend of no one literary pariah tim clare i'm not saying that but look that's this is one of the hidden bonuses actually of reading good fiction regularly by the way like you can sort of abstract some of these principles that i'm talking about some of these ways of putting together a sentence you, if you read enough it's like listening to loads of hip-hop and you start like just rhyming in your head without really wanting to while you're in the shower um if you read lots of fiction you start to develop this intuitive rhythm and you can hit words and you can hit a certain voice without consciously trying but with practice and with a little bit of conscious effort, you can actually train yourself to incorporate all these moves that I'm talking about into how you write. We talked to Dr. Martin Lotzer about the neuroscience of creative writing on a previous show. And he explained in like great detail, because it's really important to me that I actually get professionals on the show rather than me just trying to sort of filter stuff that i've read in papers and in popular science journals um into my own language where i'll 
inevitably garble it, but he explained how fMRI scans showed activation in experienced writers in a completely different part of the brain to people who don't write creative writing regularly, um, in the language centres of the left hemisphere and in the basal ganglia, which deals with automating processes in the brain. So if you practice these ideas that I talk about on the show, be patient. In as few as eight weeks, if the latest studies on neuroplasticity are any indication, again, Dr. Tim Pitcher, when I had him on the show to talk about procrastination, talks a little bit about that and um, the studies they've shown that change regions of the brain. Your brain will grow new neural pathways and it will shift production across from the visual cortex in the uh, right to this downstreamed semi-intuitive process i say it's semi-intuitive but it's actually partially you know taken over by a lot of the super rational kind of processes right so and then you've baked in this solid writing set of principles this paradigm it's like actually hardwired into your brain i I know i know i sound slightly wee-woo when i talk about this right I, like half bro science, half mentally ill author talking to himself in an empty office. I have seen people's faces when I start talking about neuroscience and creative writing in the same breath. Like they look at me with like the kind of fixed grin you would use to try and humour a an elderly relative who um believed that they were still a spy um for fighting world war Two. like like people are just like i'm sure that's true tim why are you telling me this shit but i look i re- here's why it matters right i'm just saying there is a developmental side to this process like physically what fires together wires together and if you there is a physical kind of like there are gates that you have to go through it takes a while to change your brain you know this anyway that it takes a while to learn things but like if you are prepared to work to get yourself over this initial hump of like oh you're making writing a lot more complicated than i'm used to at least some of these good habits will just become an inalienable part of your writing voice and your bog standard first drafts will be of a higher quality. They will come out better. No one is born knowing how to write. We learn these things. We develop part of our, parts of our brain through training and practice. Can creative writing be taught? Elements of it can be passed on, but actually the question is... Creative writing is never inherited. Creative writing can be trained. And what I'm teaching you are the, are these principles that you can then practice and you entrain them in your brain. And in that sense, your brain is as capable. And I say this because this is this is fucking important for you to know. Right. There is no there is no inalienable writer's brain that one person has. And then your brain. Right. There are certainly some like better starting points and some worse starting points that, that your brain can have and your life can have. But you can train yourself to be just as capable as anyone else. You can do that consciously. And if you go, well, you know, I just find these things, you know, I, I don't can't come up with words or I'd never have a, as, as nice a turn of phrase as you. Well, you might have a different turn of phrase than me. But if you train these things through small exercises and through the writing process and through applying conscious effort, I'm telling you now, 
And, you know, the more I research this, the more evidence I get that this is true, you can learn to do this and for a lot of it to just seem like second nature. So some people go, you're so talented. You're not talented. You have mobbled your brain to downstream these things so you just do them automatically the rest right the things that you miss you can do manually on your second third fourth passes when you come to redraft and the other stuff you know occasionally you know so you have some of it in your conscious mind and then you scan for it when you're going through a second draft so you're no longer having to come up with a story you are now starting to change it and shift it and consciously direct it and and then and there'll be stuff that you miss even on five goes through you won't be able to see your own work anymore and that is why we have agents and editors and copy editors and beta readers so look right i'm i'm getting distracted again i like um long brass nails Dan, if you're still here, thank you for sticking with me as I go off on one. Long brass nails, that is a good specific. I love the tapping of the long brass nails. I'm not sure tender is an ideal adjective to append to throat. It seems like a weird observation to make about your own throat. Uh, a bit ironic or distancing. It's a bit story a bit self-consciously story-ish. Um, possible slight pronoun confusion, by the way, when you move from grandmother's cod to she crashed from the water... It's not clear at this point in the story whether we're supposed to understand that the she is grandmother or someone else entirely. And do you mean cod singular or cod plural? Because at this stage, again, once you've read the whole story, it's clearer. But are we talking a fish farm or like a single cut of dead fish bit on a grill or something like that? It is ambiguous, especially because it's in a dream and not in a helpful or intriguing way. I immediately felt a bit lost. But on this cold Tuesday, the pond was frozen solid in my nightmare and mother was trapped. Worst still, she was alive, struggling to squirm, lips blue and black like lugworms. So, one, is the narrator really conscious of what day it is in their dream? I've never had that happen. Mentioning the day here feels like an odd distraction. It's like you're not really investing in the dream. You're going, so here's the day. And now I'm asleep in the day. I don't know what day it is yet, but I'm going to wake up in a minute and it will be a day. Like, it, it's just a weird reframing where there's no clear narrative present. You don't need to say frozen solid. Frozen means solid. I'm not sure why you add the clause worst still. One, it's worse still, not worst still. And two, what is the narrator saying? He'd prefer if she were dead. Like, I get that it's, like, horrible and macabre. Like, even more disturbing than a body frozen in ice. It's a moving body frozen in ice. But, like, actually, if you read the sentence, surely it is better that the person is trapped under the ice but still alive than just being a corpse. Struggling to squirm feels a bit overcooked as a phrase. I, I think either she's struggling or squirming. Pick one or the other. I appreciate you're trying to describe this like very restricted movement. Maybe, you know, she's struggling. She can't even squirm. But then squirm doesn't really exist, right? The, the verb struggling to squirm, right? So she's not squirming. She want, so actually what you're saying is that she is struggling um, with the intent to squirm, but she's not, she's not achieving squirming yet. So know that so as a reader we, we're told you mentioned squirming but she's not doing that but we have to know it's such an abstract thing to go she is endeavoring very hard to do this action which she is not doing because she's not there yet so just hold that in your mind but cross it out because she's not doing it it's weird <laughs> like it's such an odd turn of phrase i think just say she's struggling or she's squirming 
like that gives us enough no it's not quite as refined as struggling to squirm but you've got to pick your battles and i don't think that's one that's worth it and you slow it down and then the reader gets caught up in all those like little refined things and again look i'm not suggesting that everyone consciously starts like nitpicking your sentence apart when they read that. and of course they don't but the the brain even just like on a subconscious level when there's ambiguity will just start farting around the edges of words and it's just that moment where the story seems fuzzy when you you got distracted or lost attention that it's very difficult unless you analyze the stories like this it's very difficult to say why so i yes i am being uh petty to the point of being facetious but that's what you that's what the human brain does and we've got to we've got to try and be as precise as we can and sometimes we you know it's better to say less and kind of use more speed and and have a kind of like broad sense of accuracy rather than drilling down and losing the forward momentum in a way that confuses the reader I was stabbing at the ice with one of grandmother's best dinner forks wanting to free her somehow again the proximity of grandmother and her creates ambiguity because I was stabbing at the ice with one of grandmother's best dinner forks wanting to free her somehow but this is we're not talking about grandma or are we we don't know so who's who here is is confusing enough like again you can figure it out if you read the whole bit but it's confusing enough to snag the reader's brain and I think like some readers may parse this sentence the way you intended on a first pass with no trouble but I think you'll trip up enough to lose a non-trivial portion of your readers. I, th I think basically, Dan, you can do better than this. When Uncle Philip died, Grandmother offered a solemn nod. With the death of Aunt Ladle, a discreet sniff. A wail like this meant one thing only. The death of Cod. So I want to say, despite the elegant construction, so far you've introduced four characters. Mother, Grandmother, Uncle Philip and Aunt Ladle plus the narrator and there's another one coming in a minute right so that is a lot for the reader to hold in their head with no real way of differentiating between plot critical information and whimsical flavor we've not seen these characters do anything we've not been given physical descriptions that we can tie those floating textual labels to it's it's a lot of mental work that you're asking the reader to do and we don't really know why we're doing it there's not really a reason to be super super invested in any of these random um, combos of letters and again using cod is ambiguous the death I, look, I, I get right that you might be doing like a pun like it's like the death of god the death of a cod of cod but it's the death of a cod right the death of hunt it could be and it could mean but but the death of cod could mean the death of a single cod it could mean the death of hundreds i mean specifically what i've come to understand is that one of her cod has died i don't think there's any percentage in dancing around what precisely is going on i get it you're trying to be whimsical you're trying to be coy i do this all the time and you kind of go "Ooh, what a cod that's an odd thing to have died why does she care but like the narrator is quite consciously telling a story they can spell out to the reader what's going on i don't think it's as funny to kind of dance around it i think just like get into it he's dead dead as bone what a rotten world we're in the silver might the shard of heaven was it you you nasty devil i just want to say i like the tone of this dialogue sorry for doing for doing a voice i'm not 
100% committing to it, I admit. It, it just feels fun. Like, I think the reason I spontaneously did a voice is just, he's dead, dead as bone. What a rotten world we're in. The silver might, the shard of heaven. Was it you, you nasty devil? I like it, right? Like, it just sort of like, there's got a little zing to it. I'm going to say I think you need dialogue tags for this bit. Just dropping unattributed dialogue into this blank space that you haven't blocked any of the characters out, out in. And we haven't been introduced to any of the characters who are speaking. So we just got like uh, a bit of dialogue, a response, a bit of dialogue. It does feel disorienting. So look, Dan, hello. I found some stuff to grouse about in this submission because that's rather my job here. But to be clear, what a lot of promise. Uh, when this extract is good, it's excellent. Yes, it, it falls apart a bit, but, but there's something there, tonally, compositionally, that made me metaphorically sit up and metaphorically go, ooh, which I don't do that often. So kudos. Of course, you are far more than just your work and deserving of scads more than a mere metaphorical ooh, a wondrous, radiant human being. And I mean that unsarcastically, but just in case it needs saying, Maybe look again at some of the basics, like clarity, presenting information in a logical order, not being um, coy to try to create intrigue, not overwhelming the reader with characters before you've completed a, a simple scene, making sure that named characters are introduced in a way that helps them be memorable, not naming characters if they're going to not be hugely plot critical early on until we're grounded in the world because the fancy all singing all dancing stuff that you've got in this you know you're actually quite good at it and I don't want to say that in a way that makes you feel under pressure but like you can do high-end production well done but don't use it as chaff to distract us from the fact we don't quite know where we are and who's saying what because Here's the thing. If you can get both of those things, stylistically rich plus comprehensible, you can take that combo to the bank, my friend. Right, that's it. Thank you, Dan, for your submission. If you'd like to be featured on a future cast, that's what I'm calling podcasts now, apostrophe cast, send me the first 250 words of your story along with the title and your name. Just go to timclairpoet.co.uk, click the box marked contact me. If you're coming to one of my gigs in May, either London on Thursday, May the 2nd, or Bristol on Wednesday, May the 15th, and I hope you are, I will be critting work live, just like I did in this show, on stage with award-winning authors Joe Dunthorne and Gareth L. Powell, respectively, both of whom have proud Welsh heritage. If you specifically want to submit for one of those, mark your sub with Bristol or London. To be clear, we won't be like picking on authors in the audience while we crit their work, so you can attend and still be anonymous. If you don't want to submit work, but you want to come along, like... We're going to be involving people from the audience as well. I want to hear from people. You know, that's the point of doing it live. It's not TV. You can say, what do you think we can get a little bit of a discussion going? Um, it's not going to be enforced uh, audience participation, but certainly there will be opportunities after we've chatted about stuff for people to chime in with their comments. But it, look, it will be cool, lovely, a sweet delight to feature some work from people who actually attend those sessions. Speaking of which, I would love to see you 
uh, at one of those shows. Um, it would be really, really great. I don't want to sound too desperate, um, but I have no idea how many people are going to turn up. Um, tickets are available via the links in the show notes on this show, or you can just search either Tim Clare London Foils or Tim Clare Bristol Storysmith for links. That's Tim Clare London Foils or Tim Clare Bristol Storysmith, and there are ticket links there. This is the first time I've taken the podcast on the road. So to be honest, I am a bit nervous and I'd really, really appreciate your support. Um, If you know any writers groups or friends who you think might enjoy it or, you know, you want to make a evening of it and get a gang of you together and travel down to see us, please let people know, spread the word and let me know you're coming. I'd love to say hello. Do me a solid turn up. Let's have a party i'm excited right that's it i'm gonna go and steam my face because i have a horrible cold as i've already mentioned it's fine treat yourself nicely dear friend in all the rich diversity of the cosmos you are a completely unrepeatable event have fun with your writing grow wise from your struggles and i'll see you next time